Pastor Andrew, I highly appreciate that much. Grab your Bibles, Hebrews, if you will, Hebrews chapter number 10. We'll jump back into our study here in this wonderful book, Hebrews chapter number 10. If you have your prayer bulletin, I hope you grab that. Uh, if not, we'll eventually find an usher who can hand them out, and uh, they'll come down the middle aisle and... Uh, uh, hook up any of those <laughs> who don't have one. We'd love for you to follow along. We'll quickly kind of go over a few things that we talked about last week, kind of bring up to speed. We've got a few uh, new faces here this evening, and so we want to bring you up to speed too. So if you need an outline, get Brother Ron Ruby's attention as he comes down the middle aisle, and uh, always helpful to have the outline to follow along with, if you will. Hebrews chapter 10, we jumped here into verse number 19, and uh, quite an exciting part of our study transitional, um, very much a segue passage here in Hebrews chapter 10 to the remainder, uh, the practical aspect of what we've seen. And we understood Paul, verse number 19 here in Hebrews chapter number 10, he's basically saying, based upon everything that I've written, everything that I've detailed and given to you about Jesus Christ, his superiority, his supremacy, uh, here is what we have and here is what we should do. And you remember how Paul characterizes it in verse 20, I love this statement, he called it a new and living way, a new and living way. He's broaching the subject with these Jews of something that is going to blow their mind. We'll see that in a moment. We call it very revolutionary in that sense. And so he does so. He describes this new and living way. What is he excited about? Well, he's excited about salvation. Yes, for sure. Uh, New life in Christ. But really, the, the meat of it is this. You get a personal relationship with the God of heaven. The God of all creation, the Jehovah God, covenant God, uh, something that was not even in the thoughts of a Jew. Because remember, we we talked about how uh, their religion, their system, the Levitical system and such, really kept them away from the presence of God because of their sin. That veil in the temple, the veil in the tabernacle, it separated them. Uh, Your sins have separated between you and your God. And so uh, this whole system, shall we say, highlighted, emphasized that separation due to their sin. Now, you and me and every person now being able to have a personal relationship to God, that's a foreign concept to the Jew who comes out of Judaism. Literally, we said that's a very much a revolutionary thought in their minds. It goes against everything that they've been taught and grew up understanding. And uh, we talked about how even today that's true, right? We said uh, different folks fall into different categories. One might be that there are some people, God is simply just the creator of the world. He's distant. He kind of got it started and he left. And so uh, he's a distant God. He may have created it, but he really has little to do with it. And we, we ended up, as we described that in their minds, there's no possibility or, or even a need for having a personal relationship with this distant God. Secondly, we said there's some people, obviously, that, that a God, any God that's out there, is someone to be feared or dreaded or to be fled away from. Uh, the, the gods of, of the Greek mythology, the, the gods of many different uh, groups of people and such, and they will appease the gods, but there's no, they are harsh, mean, they're very human-like, and so they're very unkind, unforgiving, moody gods, and uh, gods of man's creation. We said such gods, they certainly would rather have nothing to do with such a god, most assuredly not have a personal relationship with. And then we said another category of people would be this. There's some people God may exist or he may not exist. The, the verdict's still out. It's kind of unknowable. Yet if God does exist, uh, we certainly cannot know him in a personal sense is their view. Certainly can't have a personal relationship with him. 
To all of these groups of people, including the Jew who feels like they can never have a personal relationship with God because of their sin, and like that veil, they'll always be separated from the very presence of God. Paul now speaks in Hebrews. He addresses these folks, and he says, listen, that God, the God of the universe can be known. He can be approached. In fact, you can not just approach him, you can have fellowship with him. You, you can commune with him. In fact, you can walk and talk with this God as you move throughout your day. And it's a fantastical idea. So, so Paul rightly terms it. This is a new and living way. This is different than anything these Jews had ever experienced. And it really is the discussion for the next few passages here and certainly the next few verses. As he goes on to describe it, he, he gives for us, Roman number one, what we saw last week is what we have been given in Christ, and there's a challenge to enjoy it. We talk about those two words, having, in verse 19 and verse 21, and the idea that this is in your possession. It's yours right now through Jesus Christ. So enjoy what's in your possession. Enjoy it while you have it, okay? Literally is the idea here, and, and uh, what Paul is saying, this, you've got it, so enjoy it. What do we have that we ought to enjoy? Number one, it's a boldness to enter into the presence of God. As we saw last time, he speaks of this, and uh, this idea of boldly entering in, and he pictures it with the holiest of holies. So we identify, and again, we're just reviewing quickly the provision for boldness to enter into the presence of God is mine, because why? As mentioned in verses 19 and 20, God gave his blood and his body for us. It's quite interesting, and not by accident, that Paul mentions both. They alludes to the sacrifice of both his body and blood here to gain this. And so literally Paul is saying, okay, you're this new and living way. You and I are now enjoying a living faith in ways that have never been enjoyed before. Nothing that the Old Testament saints could enjoy until Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. You say, well, what does that look like? Well, you and I have the grand privilege today as being believers that you and I have unprecedented fellowship and communion with God in which he guides us, he directs us, he looks after us, he cares for us, he provides and protects us, he strengthens and delivers us through our trials and temptations, he communes with us, he just, uh, it's an unbelievable relationship that you and I gain and have with God through Jesus Christ. We mentioned we can now know God intimately, personally. We can experience that fellowship, the presence, the very power of God all the time. What a joy it is. Then we looked at verse 21 as we finished up. It speaks of Jesus Christ, what we have gained in him and what he is to us. Uh, we called it that, that trailblazer leading me into the presence of God. I have boldness to enter into the presence of God, and I have a trailblazer in Jesus Christ. Literally, he is our forerunner, as is pictured here in this passage. He's done everything that is necessary to secure you and I a place in the presence of God. You and I can go before him. Literally, we have an open invitation, we said last week, to come into the presence of God himself. And it is not just an invitation to stop by, to spend a few moments. No, this is an invitation for you and I to dwell with him. And we'll look at some verses that talks about dwelling with God, being in his presence, spending time there. How wonderful that is. Yet we finished up last time. And now making the segue to tonight's message or the part of the passage we'll consider tonight. We said that um, cannot simply rest in the truth of what we have. Yes, we ought to enjoy it, but in order to enjoy it to its full extent, in order to make the most of it, there's something else we must do. 
We are called to do more if we could put it that way. Because possession does not guarantee that we will take full advantage of it. To have something does not mean you will always use it. So it doesn't guarantee that we'll use what we have or take full advantage of it. And so that thought leads us now into verses 22 and 24. If you glance ahead at verses 22 and 24, it's a familiar passage, right? It's often referred to as God's vegetable garden. Okay, I know there's some vegetables out there, and uh, Miss Nancy Hildinger grabbed a couple tomatoes beforehand. So whoever put them out there, Nancy, appreciate it. I, com- I was going to confiscate them because I'm afraid Al Hildinger is going to throw them at me uh, during the sermon, right? And uh, so we often call this God's vegetable passage. Why? Well, because the next three verses has what we call many different kinds of lettuce, okay? Let us, let us, let us, let us, okay? So many preachers have called that many times before. The idea of a vegetable patch, God's vegetable patch, and these different kinds of lettuce. Now, uh, always stirs within me memories of when I was a junior hire. When I was a junior hire, I had a privilege of working on a farm and uh, um, couldn't really get a job anywhere else. My brother had worked there at times, and so um, we got to go to this farm. This farm was kind of unusual. It was a uh, green farm. In other words, it had greens, all kinds of greens, you name it, leaf lettuce, kale, all kinds of things that they grew. And so uh, during uh, a month or two, however long it was, we would work at the farm during that harvest time. And I remember distinctly, it was pretty hard work and uh, acquainted me with uh, good old farm work, right? And so and we got, had to get out there really early. We got out on a tractor and a trailer and they took us out in the middle of this cornfield and they'd hand us bushel, uh, bushel baskets and a knife and we'd have to get down on our hands and knees and go down, up and down the rows cutting out the, the leaf lettuce and other things, bunching them up, putting them in those bushel baskets. We loaded them back up on the trailer and then we went to the barn. And in the barn, and we had to wash it all, clean it out, and then we had to um, wrap them in such a way that you and I see them in the grocery store, <laughs> and, uh, the different kinds of lettuce and things like that. And so it's a good job, learned a lot. I learned that manual labor can sometimes not be fun, and, uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, it was a good job. And every time I come across this passage, I think of that, of that job, okay? And uh, uh, the, the reality that here it is that God is telling us to ensure that we have some things. Why? So that you and I, and here's our next point, cannot just enjoy the things that we have, but we ought to experience some. So we are called to do something in light of what we enjoy. Here's the experiential aspect of what we enjoy. You have this in your possession, so now experience it. And I... Uh, I've been excited about getting to this passage. I did not think that we will spend as much time as we probably will on it um, because there's several aspects to it that I think are crucial in the, and I hope you'll see it tonight. But look at verse 22. In fact, we'll just read the first part of verse 22. Notice what it says. Let us draw near. Let's stop there a second, okay? Let us draw near. So the, the first encouragement, exhortation about um, you and I experiencing what we enjoy is the command to let us draw near. So literally, we'll just use a very simple word, letter A, enter. Enter. The door's been opened. The veil's been removed. As we said, it's kind of been shoved aside by what Christ has done. And you and I can freely go in and out of the very presence of God frequently. So draw near. In fact, number one, we'd say this. Really, the the push of this first part uh, is this. Pursue such entrance pursue such entrance the intimation here uh, in the verse is that you and i would be determined and purposeful uh, in coming before god regularly coming before god regularly purposeful determined 
pursuing the very presence of God. Now, that begs the question, doesn't it? How do we do that when you and I are stuck here on earth while God is in heaven? Well, we do so spiritually, not physically for the time being. We pursue uh, that uh, presence of God spiritually, and we do it with the spiritual tools that we have been given, the times of prayer, uh, God's Word, certainly yielding to the Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about this in a moment because I think it also goes into our next point. But I would ask you this, morning, or this evening, uh, sometime today, this morning, this afternoon, or in this evening, have you, have you pursued the presence of God? Seek me and ye shall find me. There's much said in God's word for you and I to seek him, draw near. It's, a, it, it's an active command for you and I to enter. Go ahead, come on. It's been opened. The door's there. Go ahead and come on in. And uh, that's literally what the scriptures are saying. In fact, the Holy Spirit is like, you, you draw near. You, you purposefully determine to come near, to come into the presence of God on a daily basis. Now, the rest of the verse is quite interesting because there's what we might call qualifications added to it how you are supposed to draw near so number one pursue such an entrance into the very presence of god number two purify yourself for such entrance purify yourself for such an entrance look at verse 22 and the remainder of it let us draw near how well with a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, immediately when a Jew was reading this, this would stir in his mind many memories, many thoughts uh, of what he would know about Israel as a whole, the nation, the Jewish tradition, the Jewish history. When Paul would write that we are to come and draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, Paul is literally, or the Holy Spirit is saying, do so with a genuineness to your faith. A genuineness to your faith. There's no hypocrisy. There's no ulterior motive. Well, I'm only drawing near to God to get what I want or to reap the blessings or whatever the case may be. It's not just a superficial or surfacey kind of faith. Eh, no superfluity to it. There's, no, uh, eh, there's nothing to it other than it's just genuine. It's real. It's true. With a true heart, the Bible says here. Literally, it is what we would call voracious. Not, not voracious, but voracious. It is literally true and honest. It is voracious. It's a strong truth, a strong honesty, a sincerity that, that you and I ought to draw near with. It's a genuine faith. But do you see what this passage in this little statement says that a genuine faith then produces? Now, this is crucial. Do not miss it because this is very practical for you and I. When God says, I want you to draw near unto me with a true heart that is full of assurance. You know what that says? That a genuine faith, a true heart, a genuine heart, you know what it produces? It produces an unwavering confidence which leaves no room for doubt. It's full assurance of your faith. You draw near with a true heart, a genuine heart that is full of assurance of the very thing that you have faith in that your faith is well-placed, that uh, it is not put into something that will not fulfill it. And here's what's interesting. A Jew reads this, and for you it may not mean anything because you've always said, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I've had genuine faith my whole life. I've, I've always had this faith that, that God's going to do what he has said, though I dare say we probably all struggle with that at some point in our life when we face something, that full assurance. 
But for the Jew who reads this, immediately bells and whistles probably go off in their head because they know they know the uh, checkered past of their nation, of their people. See, the long history of Israel is littered with a nation that fails to have a genuine or true heart. And it became very obvious ever since they left Egypt, or even in Egypt, that this was true. You see the statement here, they The Israelites were often called out by God because why? Well, they often displayed a quick-to-doubt attitude that was displayed on many occasions through uh, their lack of a genuine heart. So they displayed a quick-to-doubt attitude. A quick-to-doubt attitude. Literally, there wasn't full assurance to their faith. Can you remember, in fact, uh, as you fill in all the blanks, I left you a lot tonight, okay? So I thought some of you might be tired and keep you awake. You're using your hand. No, I'm kidding. Uh, But uh, think about it with me. When they were just a few days out of Egypt, what did they do? Complained. Whined. You should have left us in Egypt. Why'd you bring us here? I mean, we're just talking a few days out. We're just talking a, a little ways away. And then all throughout their time in the wilderness, even going into the promised land i mean this is time and time and time again a nation that shows what a quick attitude to doubt you know what that is a symptom of a heart that is not genuine and true in their faith so you and i can make a careful practical application of that in my life can i tell you when you and i are quick to doubt what god is doing we better go back and say okay how's my heart How's my heart? Is it truly full of assurance in my faith in God? Is it truly all trusting in God no matter what my eyes see, no matter what happens in my life? Am I fully trusting Him? Is it a full assurance? Is it a true and genuine heart that I possess? It's found throughout all the time of the the Jews and Israelites, even when they're in the land, before the captivity, during the captivity at times. Jeremiah captured it well for us. I like this statement because here, here, notice what it says. Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 10, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. Yet for all of this, uh, her treacherous sister Judah, okay, so he's talking about Israel, and he's talking about Israel having been in a position or a status of backsliding. And then he says, listen, Judah, you saw the judgment that came upon Israel, and yet, here's what he says, and yet for all of this, her treacherous sister Judah hath not turned unto me with her, what's the next word? Oh, her true, her genuine heart, but faintedly, deceitfully, double-minded, double-hearted, not a fully given to God heart, not a true, genuine heart, saith the Lord. God is condemning Judah because uh, during this time when the nation of Israel was split into tribes and such, uh, they had saw what had happened to Israel and the judgment and the condemnation, the damnation that fell upon them because of their sin. And yet she did not learn that one of the things that had caused that was the own issue in her uh, heart was the lack of a genuineness to it. The nation did not realize that. They too were in very much a backslidden position didn't confess her faults of not being genuine, but rather followed God half-heartedly. 
You see, we'd put it this way. They lacked this true heart, which can't help but cause you to falter in your full assurance of faith. Therefore, what did they struggle with? They struggled with doubt. They struggle with trusting God, that he will do what he said he will do, that he'll provide for them and meet their needs every step of the way. They struggled doing what the just will do. The just shall live by faith. So the very thing that they needed as they went throughout their wilderness and they went to the promised land, they needed a full assurance of faith. But they did not have it. Why? Because their heart was not whole. It was not true. It was not genuine. In fact, the Bible says from the beginning, in fact, it carries over the New Testament. Jesus Christ repeats it. What, what's the first commandment? Love the Lord thy God with all your heart. With all your heart. And they fail time and time and time again. And I'll tell you right now, my friend, when you and I don't love the Lord our God with all of our heart, you know what will falter? The full assurance of our faith. Full assurance of our faith. Well, God's going to work that out. I know I can trust him. Well, God will, God will bring good from this. Even though it seems like everything's bad, God's going to bring good from it. I have faith. I can trust in him. The full assurance of my faith is rooted in you and I loving the Lord with all of our heart, having a genuine, true heart that truly trusts in our God. And this is exactly how God tells you and I. Christ has opened the doors. The veil is ripped. Come into my presence, but do so. Do so with a true heart full of assurance of faith come in my presence as such see paul would write about this wouldn't he here's the neat thing i love how this forgive me for getting excited but to me this is exciting you know what happens next paul goes on into an entire chapter at least the translators put in a chapter of what describing this kind of genuine faith in its product in people's lives he starts with Abraham, and he goes all throughout these Old Testament saints. He says, listen, these people of old, you know what they had? A true heart. They loved God with all of their heart. And guess what showed up in their lives? A full assurance of faith. That Abraham guy, he left his home thing. He had, for a country, he had never seen. Strange land. Why? Because he had a true heart full of assurance of faith. And Paul will expound upon it in the days ahead as we get to those passages. It's also what God said will happen in the future. Here's one of the great joys for you and I as we believe that the day is coming where we'll see Israel restored as they'll come to realize that Jesus Christ is their Messiah. You know what Jeremiah prophesied? I love this. Later on in the book of Jeremiah, he says this, And I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. He's coming. They'll realize who I am. And the people of Israel will come to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They will love the Lord thy God, Jesus Christ, as their Savior with their whole heart. The day is coming. See this verse also as it would continue. It would speak of, and we read ahead, you look quickly ahead in this verse, and it speaks of the sprinkling and the washing. Immediately the Jewish mind would be taken back to the priests of old and all the purification processes. That's why we use the terminology. Number one, you pursue coming into this entrance, the, the presence of God. But number two, you purify yourself as you come in. Number one, you make sure you have a true heart that has full assurance of faith. But it also speaks of the sprinkling and the washing. 
And they would be reminded that the priest of old, before they came into the tabernacle of the temple, before they offered sacrifices, before they entered into the the Holy of Holies as the the high priest would do on the Day of Atonement, um, they would be reminded of the washing and the sprinkling that would take place. In fact, in a moment, I'll have you look at an Old Testament passage. But before I do, let me just share with you a couple verses. Exodus chapter 30. And there's one of those blanks. Exodus chapter 30, verses 18 through 21. Here's what verse 18 says. Thou shalt also make a laver, literally like a bowl, a, a place for washing of brass, and his foot also of brass, to wash withal. And thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water therein. Why? Verse 19. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. Then he says in verse number 20. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn offering made by fire of the Lord. So you see this repeated command. You've got to wash. You've got to wash. You've got to be purified. The ceremonial cleansing, the ceremonial washing that had to take place as part of many a sacrifice uh, instructions. He goes on, verse 21. So they shall wash their hands and their feet that they die not. Can I tell you, what if your mom treated washing hands the same way, amen? Okay, I'm going to kill you if you don't wash your hands. That's what it says, right? That they die not because God, what? He values purity. He values holiness. And that was the picture here. And so they had to be cleansed and washed. You and I could not attain it ourselves, but praise be unto God, we are found holy in His holiness, His righteousness. The pictures or the correlation is just continually run. But we also can look at another passage. This is one we'll turn to. So keep your spot here in Hebrews. And we're going to turn to Leviticus chapter 16. This is dealing very much with the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. When the high priest would go into that. And so I want you to see particularly, specifically in this passage, this chapter, some of the, the requirements, some of the instructions given to the high priest and others who helped him here. Okay, notice it in verse 4. Let's start there. Verse number 4. We're not going to read the whole passage for sake of time, but notice this, verse 4. He shall put on the holy linen coat. He shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh and shall be girded with a linen girdle. And with the linen miter shall he be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water and so put them on. Jump all the way down to verse 24. Notice what it says here. He shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place and put on his garments and and come forth and offer his burnt offering. The burnt offering of the people, make an atonement for himself and for the people. Verse 26, now involving others that assisted the high priest in what took place in the ceremony. And he that let go of the goat uh, for the scapegoat, we talked about that several messages ago, shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water and afterward come into the camp. Verse number 28. And he that burneth them shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water and afterward shall come into the camp. Okay. Now as we go over all the Levitical instructions and commands, we, you'll find if we were had time to read through Leviticus and Exodus and all of those that have the instructions, time and time again, both the priest and the sacred vessels had to be washed. Just they continually washed, as we've read already and seen these examples of, as part of the sacrificial service. Not only that, 
but there was the sprinkling of blood that often had to take place. In fact, it was sprinkled on the priest at times. It was sprinkled on the altar at times. And in fact, it was sprinkled on the actual tabernacle at times. The sprinkling of blood for purification, for the washing, the cleansing, if we might describe it as such. And so we read here that you and I are supposed to come into the presence of God, number one, true heart, with full assurance of faith. But number two, notice what it says, what Paul says in this verse, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. What does that mean? Well, back in Hebrews chapter 9, when we covered verse 14, that must have been like two years ago, um, when we were there, we covered this word conscience. In fact, it speaks of that word conscience. And it tells us that our conscience is purged by Christ's sacrifice. Uh, uh, it, it was purged in that sense. In fact, someone asked a great question to which we get to even here in this passage. Thing. As it's mentioned there that our conscience is purged by the blood of Christ, the statement presents to us a beautiful picture of deliverance. Why? Now, don't miss this. This is why Paul references the conscience, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14, and then here in Hebrews chapter 10, 10 verse 22. Okay? Our conscience is very good at condemning us and reminding us of our guilt. Our conscience is very adept at condemning us and reminding us of our guilt over our sin. So the conscience is very good at that. We, uh, it con- condemns us, convicts us, uh, all, all those truths. Okay? Likewise, then, and the guilt of sin, therefore, cannot be removed until the sin is removed. Okay? So the, the guilt of sin, the thing that the conscience continually condemns us with and for, continues reminds us of that guilt cannot be removed until sin is removed. Well, here's the good news that Paul has stated. When Jesus Christ died and he shed his blood for us, the remission or removal of sins was then and only then possible. And therefore, our conscience is made or rendered free of guilt. So when he says you and I having our our conscience, as he puts here in verse 22, sprinkled, uh, from an evil conscience. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. He's alluding to this simple truth. Don't miss it. You and I are cleansed of the evil conscience within that condemns us. And instead, as we enter into the very presence of God, we can claim the blood of Jesus Christ which cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Both in salvation, but on a daily basis. On a daily basis that you and I get to say, hey, listen, okay, um, I'm claiming the blood right now because I've sinned today. And, and Father, I'm confessing my sin. And God has promised to you and I that what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In fact, he wrote in 1 John 1, 7, right before that in verse 9, he says this, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Having a heart that is sprinkled from an evil conscience. 
Then as we said, he goes on to write, as we confess our sins, we can be confident that he's forgiven our sins and he indeed cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So here's the point. When you entered the presence of God today, when you and I have in prayer, even in this service, the reality is this, you and I can say to God in heaven, we can say this, Father, I sure don't deserve to be here, but the precious blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed me from sin. I am therefore entering on the basis of the blood of my Savior. So not only because he saved me, but today, today you sin. Did you sin yesterday? How about the day before? How about last week? Did you, did you say something you ought not have? Did you think something you shouldn't have thought? Did you kind of lose your cool with someone? Did you lose your patience with someone? Uh, the myriad of sins of the flesh that you and I could give into, the reality is this, my friend. When you and I committed those sins, we have the wonderful privilege and promise that if you and I confess our sins, he will forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and my friend, you can keep your conscience quiet because Jesus Christ has removed those sins. And now you and I, as we have confessed our sins, you and I can enter into the very presence of God anytime, all the time. So draw near. Draw near having a conscience, a heart sprinkled um, from an evil conscience. Then he adds the last statement. You see it here, would you? It's quite an interesting statement and sometimes hard to understand. He says, let us draw near with bodies washed with pure water. Again, he's obviously using the picture and uh, the title of our book is Hebrews. He's uh, trying to reach the Hebrew heart. And so the ceremonial purification uses that labor of pure water to cleanse the bodies of the priests of old. But what does it picture for you and I? Well, I sure am thankful, and I said it from the pulpit a few uh, services ago. The best interpreter of God's Word is God's Word. And so the Holy Spirit would lead Paul in two of his other letters to really give us a a clear and concise explanation of why does Paul write this? Having your bodies washed with pure water. Yeah, I get the picture, the reference to the Old Testament, but, but how do you and I do that right now is the question. Well, turn with me, if you will, to a familiar verse. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. So we're all the way back in the New Testament. We're just a little bit before here in, uh, uh, in Hebrews um, where we're at. So Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. Great verse. Many of us know it. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. What does it say? It says this, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. I like that statement right there in the middle. That is literally what Paul would be alluding to even here. What is that? Well, that washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. The washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. That ongoing renewing. What was the Holy Spirit the catalyst for? Well, regeneration. And now the ongoing renewing of us, the, the renovation of you and I as believers, the putting on the, the new man in Christ. The Holy Spirit is the catalyst behind all of that. And it started with and continues with that washing of regeneration and that ongoing renewing. But there's more to it. And I think this is probably the verse that is more pinpoint to what Paul says in Hebrews. Paul will explain to you and I that Jesus Christ is continually washing 
or purifying his church? The question then begs itself, with what? What is he washing himself, his church, the bride, you and I, the church? What is he washing us with? Uh, Paul alludes to it. Christ, uh, Paul will now tell us that Christ is doing that to his church. So what's he doing it with? Look at Ephesians chapter 5, if you will, with me. Ephesians chapter 5. Last passage we'll look at, last verse. Notice what he writes in Ephesians chapter number 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we pick up in verse number 26. Ephesians 5, 26. Speaking of Jesus Christ, you see in verse 25 and before, it's alluding to Christ, the church. It says this, that he, Christ, might sanctify and cleanse it, that's the church, with the washing of water by the, what's the next word? Word. The next word is word. By the washing of the word. Now, I want you to think on that for a moment and the practicality of it for you and I in this moment today. May I just tell you right now, do not miss it. Nothing gets off the muck and the dirt of this world like getting in God's Word. Nothing cleanses us like getting in God's Word. In fact, I don't know about you, but I am bombarded, and you am bombarded, are bombarded with the thinking, the philosophies, the values, the principles, the teachings of this corrupt world seemingly all day, every day. You know what we need? We desperately need the renewing power of the Word of God. We need to fill our minds with the Word of God. You say, Pastor Henry, why do you have your devotions every day? Why do you read God's Word every day? Why do you encourage others to do it? Is that just uh, part of the to-do list, the have-tos of the Christian life? No. Can I tell you, we need God's Word. We need to be washed with the Word of God. That's what he says here. Jesus Christ is sanctifying us. He's cleansing us with what? The truth. Yeah, the truth makes you free, it sets you free, but the truth also cleanses you. That's exactly what Christ is doing. And so when you and I come into the very presence of God, when he says, let us draw near, having our bodies washed with water, he's literally saying, make sure that you're regenerated, obviously. Make sure you're being renewed by the Holy Spirit. But my friend, you and I ought to wash regularly with God's word. Wash off the muck and the dirt of this world. All the things of this corrupt world that stick to us and get in our thinking and and cause us to think erroneous thoughts and whatever the case may be. We allow God's word to go to work in our lives. You know what it does? Just really twofold. It prepares us for coming into the presence of God. But it also ushers us in to the presence. There's nothing like reading God's word. and yeah, You get your mind set. That word have I hit in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And boy, you just let your mind be consumed with the word of God. And as you do so, the Holy Spirit speaks to you. And you feel in those moments that you are in the very presence of God. It has ushered you into the presence of God. May I just tell you tonight, it is good to be washed with the word of God. That's why we study it. That's why we preach it. That's why we read it. Because we want to be washed with it. That's Christ's intent. That he might sanctify and cleanse the church, it, with the washing of water by the very word of God. So you and I come to this one verse, and I'll be honest with you. As we were headed this way last week, I thought we'd get through three verses tonight. We've barely gotten through one. Here's why. Because, my friend, there's a lot here. 
you and I are challenged to do this. You have this in Christ, enjoy it, now experience. How do I experience? You draw near. You pursue the very presence of God. But you do it having purified yourself. How do I purify myself? Well, you make sure you have a genuine, true heart that produces unwavering confidence that in turn leads to that full assurance of faith. So draw near to him with a genuine, true heart leads to that full assurance faith. Number two, draw near claiming the blood of Jesus Christ as the basis for entering. Enter having your heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. My friend, do you realize how good it is for you and I to be be able to enter the very presence of God without condemnation? Oh yeah, my own self, I don't deserve to be here. But as I wear the robe of righteousness, I deserve to be here. Because God made it possible. Then last but not least, draw near being washed and cleansed by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. It's the first lettuce, okay? If you don't like lettuce, I hope you like this kind of lettuce, amen? If you don't like your greens, this is the best kind of lettuce to eat. Consume. Say, Lord, help me this week to draw near unto you in these ways. Let me make sure I have these things. Is a very powerful, very practical truth for you and I to experience all that we have in Jesus Christ. I'd encourage you to do so. Next week, we'll get back into the vegetable patch, okay? Brother Cliff, you'll bring those.